All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you on the Tuesday, November 1st, 2016, one week before the presidential elections. I am uh, like to remind you that I am also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my partner Chen Lin publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, and you can sign up for both of those letters by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. You can also keep up with a lot of very interesting articles uh, that pertain to the gold markets and other financial markets. I have links to those uh, to those articles at miningstocks.com, and if you're a subscriber to my newsletter, you can also keep up with the latest information and news releases for all the companies that I cover. I also provide links to those uh, to those uh, press releases as well at miningstocks.com. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For today, our sponsors are Novo Resources, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, and Ariane Phosphate. Now, both Novo Resources and Klondike Gold have had some uh, very interesting assay reports today that you can read by going to miningstocks.com. Click on the links. Uh, we'll be talking to Peter Talman. He's the CEO of Klondike Gold. Um, Peter will be with me in just a few minutes after our first commercial break today. Uh, but before we get into today, to today's show, I'd like to tell you that Novo Resources, uh, just, just to give you an idea, some really um, impressive results, 59.1 grams of gold, the best intersection, that's almost two ounces of gold over two and a half meters. So very, very impressive and a lot of other impressive uh, assays as well, um, intersections reported today. Uh, also some uh, very good antimony readings in a couple of those drill intercepts as well. We'll be talking to uh, to Dr. Henning pretty soon, uh, one of these days uh, in the near future, to give us an update on Novo Resources, very exciting gold exploration play in northwestern Australia. Today's show I've titled, Can America's Superior Military Perpetuate U.S. Dishonest Hegemony? Hegemony. I always mispronounce that word, hegemony. Uh, as I noted, uh, Peter Talman will be with me in just a couple of minutes, and David McElvaney will be with me at about half past the hour, and Michael is waiting uh, to give us his latest ideas uh, uh, and his latest results about the work that he follows, the markets that he follows in just a second. Uh, just a, a word about today's show. As American bombs kill thousands of people and displace millions of refugees, hatred towards NATO and the United States is most certainly on the rise. And we've seen that expressed uh, certainly in uh, amongst the new Philippine president who's uh, called our president some pretty uh, 
pretty nasty uh, names. I suppose a lot of Americans have too, but nonetheless, for foreign leaders to call the President of the United States uh, very unflattering names is, is something kind of new. And then we saw uh, President Obama snubbed, of course, also at the G20 uh, meetings or when he tried to, when he was attempting to get off his uh, his aircraft there. The, the Chinese uh, not only did not give him the red carpet, but they basically uh, denied him access and they, the president had to get out through the back of the plane uh, through some sort of um, makeshift staircase or whatever is used. But anyway, unceremoniously received in China another snub. In the meantime, as we've uh, talked to uh, frequently on this show, we've talked about the new Silk Road that's linking China, India, Russia, uh, all the way to Eastern Europe. And it's not, it just seems to be a growing picture of economic strength from rivals uh, and rivals to NATO, which is threatening the U.S. dollar reserve currency. We, we talked to uh, Mr. Rickards about that in the past and expect to have him on in a couple of weeks again to update us on, on some of these geopolitical events and how they, uh, how they impact uh, the financial markets. Well, NATO seems to be countering this threat from from the BRIC countries and others uh, by surrounding Russia right now with troops, and I believe sending the world closer to a nuclear war than any time since perhaps the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's not my view as much as it is experts on the topic. But the question that we pose today, can military might alone save the dollar? Uh, And we'll we'll ask uh, David McIlvaney to opine on that. Uh, and what the outcome might mean for gold and other markets when we speak to him. But right now, I'm really pleased to have Michael Oliver, who certainly would have opinions on all of the topics that we're talking about today. We usually talk to Michael mostly, though, about technical work, because that's what he's known for. It's not to mean he doesn't have very well-informed opinions about fundamentals, but his work uh, and his reliance on technical analysis has been so helpful to us and so many other investors that we're really always honored and pleased to have Michael with us. Thanks for being with me again today, Michael. Always glad to be back, Jay. It's always good to have you because uh, I I really see you as an objective thinker, as one that lets the markets do the talking. You know, us guys that look at things from a fundamental perspective, oftentimes, you know, we we think we know what the markets should do. It's, It's such arrogance in a way, isn't it? I mean, how can any one person or any group of people actually uh, be smarter than the collective wisdom of markets? And I think what your work is showing is that that's simply not true, the collective wisdom of markets. But it's also in your ability to read those markets so uh, and do so so accurately from what I can see. And I've been following you now for two or three years. I don't know of anyone who's done a better job, at least from my perspective, not as a day trader, but as a longer-term investor. So I want to ask you, one of the most important markets, if not the most important market in the world, is the U.S. T-bonds. And you have been talking recently uh, through September and October, you've been talking about a break below 166 would be a pretty serious break. And in fact, I looked a little bit ago before we went on the air, Michael, and the T-bond was at 162 and 30, 30 seconds. What is your read on this? Are we, are you pretty confident that we're heading for higher yields now, lower lower prices on the T-bond? Yeah, and not just the T-bond, but the other developed economy, government debt markets, uh, the Bunds in Germany uh, and the JGBs in Japan. And also, um, I'm particularly focused on the Italian yield situation, Italy being like 10 times Greece. 
terms of lethality and size. Mm-hmm. Um, its yields uh, have been in major decline for several years, and that's due to the ECB literally driving the yields down arbitrarily to the mm-hmm. point where their 10-year Italian yield was below that of the U.S. 10-year, which is ludicrous, of course. Uh, <clears throat> it's starting to turn. The yields are turning, but more importantly, I have, if you close the week out, this is only Tuesday, but if you close the week out where we currently are, or anywhere close to where you are right now in Italian 10-year yield, the momentum of that chart uh, breaks through a four-year wide base and says to me, this rise in yields is for real. In other words, it's coming unhinged. Mm. So all of the efforts of Draghi uh, and the ECB to artificially price money in Europe or, or debt instruments, uh, it's coming undone. And Italy is the, the place to watch because, again, it's 10 times Greece. Uh, so remember, Greece back in 2011 was the, was the focal point of the world and shook everything. And now I think it's, it's, maybe it's Italy's turn. Uh, our bonds uh, have broken. In, in my opinion, the annual momentum trend of the Treasury bond market is over. It's down. Yields are going to rise. Price is going down. But I throw out this caveat. I think it's best that piece of information is best used not as a, a medium to trade in, to go short the key mm-hmm. bond futures, because I think there's a risk, and we're seeing some of it today, where if the stock market breaks sharply because of the rise in yields and other, other factors as well, unjustified price levels, for example. But uh, if, if the T-bond market's downside or upside in yields rattles the stock market enough, you're going to have flight mm-hmm. of safety. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, if you're short T-bonds, you could get hurt. So I think the, the, the main point of the T-bond top, the rise in yields now in, in bonds, is that that information should be applied to other asset categories. I think mm-hmm. it echoes, reinforces my assumption that commodities are turning up. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we're getting inflation in the commodity end, we're getting rise in yields, and that should net on balance definitely hurt the stock market. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing evidence of that in the last several months, and particularly today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's, it's a big piece attached to other pieces, and I think, yes, T-bonds have topped, yields are going up, but it might not be an easy ride if we get a sharp stock market sell-off in the middle of that, right. uh, because, again, the flight to safety. Flight to safety, and as long as the U.S. dollar is considered to be, uh, you know, the world's reserve currency or a main uh, major currency global for global trading, it will uh, that will continue to be true. I guess it's only at some point in time when and if the U.S. dollar is no longer considered to be a safe place to go to. It's hard to see that happening right away, but of course that is well, one of the overall possible. topics uh, of our show. The uh, the dollar index, which uh, you know measures against the, the euro, the euro primarily fifty seven percent to the euro, and then the yen and the British pound and so forth, is breaking down right now. It broke mm-hmm. down several days ago, according to my work. Not a major break. Uh, yeah. The major break in the dollar index, which is now under ninety eight in price in the ninety sevens, if it gets in the high ninety fives, which is just two points below where you are now, that that's in, for the dollar index at two points is a, is a distance. If you close a month out down there in the 95s, uh, you're breaking massive uptrend on annual momentum, which says the dollar's really going down, mm-hmm. um, which could oh, contribute that's... again to what? Stronger commodity markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Michael, we hear all the time the mainstream media is always telling us and wanting us to believe that the Federal Reserve is in charge of interest rates. The Federal Reserve is our God. It, it provides all our needs. We don't have to worry about anything because Ben, ben Bernanke or, or the lady in charge now, they all know what they're doing. 
You know, I have to think though that I was as I was reading your weekend missive here. You know, we've got uh, we've got interest rates on the rise. We've got commodity prices rising. Your your work is suggesting that we're in for a commodity price rise, and um, uh, and, and so the two are not unrelated, are they? So it, what's really driving these rates higher? Is it really the the Federal Reserve chiefs? Or is, are there other, you know, is the market in charge? Is the Fed in charge, I guess, is the question. I think the markets are taking over everywhere. Uh, and I think the central banks are losing control. And I think that Italy chart, uh, I issued a report today, and I think that's one big uh, raised finger that says, you're not in charge anymore, uh, Mr. Draghi. Um, yeah. And I, it, similarly here, I don't think the Fed wants rates to rise sharply. And I'm, I'm talking about a sharp rise. I'm talking about mm-hmm. the 30-year bond, which was, had been loitering around uh, 2.5% or lower for months and months, could go up to 35 to 3.7% rapidly. That's earth shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and that would, that's not caused by the central bank. They're at the, the short-term end of the debt market, you know, the overnight rates and things of that sort. So what goes on in the 10-year on out, they don't really control that well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they're losing control, basically, of everything. It's, it's more and more doubt, even among people who aren't of, let's say, free market orientation, are mm-hmm. coming to realize that uh, they've distorted things. Pricing levels of all kinds of assets have been distorted either too high or too low, other, other than where they might otherwise be, mm-hmm. and that this is coming undone. Well, we just need uh, smarter people from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, Michael. Yeah, that's all. That's all. I mean, we just need we we just don't haven't gotten quite the right person in charge yet. But right. let me ask you this, uh, Michael. You know, you talk about the commodities on the rise and gold leading that charge. Uh, do you think it? You know, at some point in time, it will be gold that leads the commodity pl- complex down. I know we're early here. You feel that we're very early in these moves. Yes. Yeah, gold does tend to lead tops and bottoms. That is a true mm-hmm. statement. Uh, in 1980, yeah. when gold peaked, it peaked in January. Oil, for example, peaked in October. Mm-hmm. Commodities Are in you- general didn't peak till later in the year. The bottom in, t- in 1976 in gold was one year ahead of the bottom in the commodity index. Uh-huh. So yeah, and recently uh, February uh, we broke I, gold broke out in my uh, on our reports we issued a report of uh, annual momentum had broken out in gold. This is in February. Mm-hmm. Oil to some extent followed in April, but basically most commodities have not yet really surged. <clears throat> we think the back end of the commodity complex is about to do that. The grains in particular, and so uh, yeah, gold tends to lead. Yeah, okay. uh, but I don't think we're anywhere near the top. Uh, that's probably years away and many thousands of dollars away. All right. So we're uh, you, the last we talked, uh, you were still looking for, you know, the first major resistance for gold in the four, high 1400s. That's still your, your, uh, that's still uh, your the belief? Moment, yeah, it may change next year. <clears throat> Number, some mm-hmm. of the numbers will change, but it was the high 1400s, low 1500s. Uh, and, and today we're surging up into the high 1290s. We've, as far as I'm concerned, the action today in gold and the action in the GDX, which is the uh, gold miners ETF, unleveraged ETF, uh, today is pretty definitive in saying the following. You've seen the low. Now, okay. the nature of the recovery from that low that mm-hmm. occurred in early in October, uh, it could be zigzaggy, but uh, the, the, that the low is in place. I feel fairly strongly that that was the end of the corrective low. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you so much again, Michael, for your insights and your uh, and for uh, helping us see forward as best we can. Uh, you're always appreciated. Thank you so much for being with us, and Thank we'll you, look Jay. to do it again Thank you. next Thank week, you. hopefully. And uh, until 
then we'll, we'll see you um, and have a great week, Michael. Uh, next week, um, we'll talk again, hopefully. Well, folks, uh, we're going to be going to a commercial break now, but when we come back, Peter Talman is going to be with us. He's a geologist and president of Klondike Gold. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Talman. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Spec Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the Symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Peter Talman. Uh, he's the president and CEO of Klondike Gold. Peter uh, is a geologist. He's uh, been around the... Uh, the exploration world, uh, gold and other minerals, uh, for the past 35 years. The past 20 years, he has been uh, either a founder, director, or senior management positions at various companies, publicly listed companies in uh, in Canada. And he's been involved in uh, looking at rocks in Canada, Chile, Mexico, and Australia. Uh, has a very great career, has uh, really started out with Murray Pezum, I believe, one of the, uh, one of the most famous uh, exploration financiers in Canada it, when I was a young man anyway and uh, so anyway Peter comes with a, a lot of background a lot of history and, and a lot of experience and is very renowned as a as a top ge- exploration geologist among his peers Klondike trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol KG and you can buy it as I have down here in the United States under the symbol KDG or KDKGF 54 million shares outstanding, and it was trading at around 20 cents Canadian uh, earlier today. It uh, really has a very minuscule market cap. If you're looking at it in U.S. dollars, as I do, it's only around seven and a half million dollars, which is just really peanuts for uh, for a company that could have um, many millions. Well, we don't want to say too much yet because we don't know. But the prospects of of a very dis- a very uh, a very large gold. Uh, discovery, I think, is uh, is not an unrealistic uh, statement. So, welcome, Peter. It's so good to have you with us today. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. 
Well, it's very good to have you. I want to ask you, uh, your property is located uh, near Dawson City in the Yukon, and it's uh, famous for millions of ounces of gold, placer gold, that was found, I guess, in the, starting in the late 1800s, right? And then, and then through the early 1900s, I suppose. Um, give us a little bit of the history of your Lone Star Gold property up there in the Klondike. Um, well, it was gold in the district was discovered in 1896, so some mm-hmm. 50 years after the discovery of the the uh, California gold rush, and mm-hmm. the two are very similar. And I think your listeners will know will be a little more familiar with the California one, but uh, they're they're almost identical in how they evolved. So the Klon- mm-hmm. in the Klondike, from then 1896 until now, there's been 20 million ounces of gold pulled from the surface gravels, and I compare that with California, where there's been about 40 million taken out, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, over the years in California, if we go there, there's been 10,000 hard rock uh, showings and, and little mines and things developed. And in the Klondike, because it's north, hard to get to, and you can't grow, uh, well, there's no timber resources or there's no farms and things, uh, there's only been 10 uh, bedrock showings found in the entire district rather than mm. 10,000 in California. Huh. Uh, California has produced like 100 bedrock mines that have created, it's been a, it's almost 120 million ounces of gold mined in California over the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. And in the, out of the Dawson district and the Klondike, there's been 1,200 ounces mined from bedrock. <laughs> so the it's a, quite a disparity. They actually are very similar geologically, and the potential is also the same. It's just that the Klondike is, well, it's famous for being hard to get to. Um, if you look it up, you see men trekking up mountains in snow, and, and a lot of people died trying to get there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for Klondike Gold, our company... Um, We've managed to acquire, we started acquiring the district three years ago, and we've now completed it, and we got it cheap because basically for 100 years, nobody has really explored it very well. Um, It's seen little exploration, in fact, and we think it's a a jewel that's that's very underappreciated. Uh, so we spent two million bucks acquiring the the ground, and we've now, over the last two years, done uh, two years basically worth of of well ground exploration, and we've made a bunch of discoveries. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, uh, Peter, one geologist that looked at your property, I, I think not very thoroughly. Uh, but he came up with the idea that, well, yeah, there's lots and lots of placer gold. It's all been eroded in these gravels, as you as you described. But that probably uh, most of the gold uh, from the from the mother load or from the source is gone. The hard rock, there's probably not much hard rock potential there. Well, you you're not in agreement of that. And you'd explain to me why it's something uh, known as an orogenic deposit. Could you perhaps, in layman's terms, explain? why you're convinced that there's an awful lot more gold to go yet, aside from what you just described in terms of comparing it with, with California. Well, and, and the, first off, that, that idea that all the gold has been eroded off and there's none left has been around since the 80s. 
mm-hmm. and that's really prevented any investment in the district. It's one of the one of the key reasons why I like it. Um, this gold orogenic model is a relatively new model for gold mineralization. Um, it's really come into its own the last ten or fifteen years, and twenty years ago was was you know, barely thought of. Um, basically, apply and that. It, it means, or the model suggests that faulting and thrusting are responsible for the emplacement of gold, and it suggests where you should go within the rocks to find it. Uh, it also suggests that the gold will be coarse and visible, which is what we have. The 20 million mm-hmm. ounces were all visible. Uh, so two years ago, we started looking around at these geophysical targets and, and old workings at surface, and We've spent two years drilling them, and we now have three distinct zones of continuous mineralization. Uh, you were talking in your preview about Novo resources, which I, I know well. Mm-hmm. And one of your promos was you had a couple of ounces over a couple of meters. So two years mm-hmm. ago, we discovered a goal zone at Gay Gulch that runs 76 grams over 2.8 meters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and since the last... Well, two years ago, late as well, we another zone at Nugget was five grams over 14 meters, which we've been drilling since then. Um, and then just recently, this morning, for the first time, we announced a, a zone, basically a new discovery at Lone Star. Lone Star is one of the ten historic underground workings in the Klondike. And during the turn of the century, that's the one that was mined and produced 1,200 ounces. Mm-hmm. So we had a new look at it and said, you know what, there's a lot of potential there, especially applying this orogenic model. And so we basically stepped to one end of it. We, we d- determined that there was a 700-meter strike length of good-looking material with, with quartz staining and visible gold. And uh, the first two holes we announced this morning were on the western end of that and we have another 15 holes to come we don't have assays for they look nice and core and uh that goes across 700 meters of strike length Hmm. okay and so to answer your first question is there gold like is it all eroded away uh well (laughs) no not all because we've managed to find we we own the district so we have Basically, uh, again, going back to California, if you imagine the California gold rush and one company controlling all of the ground that uh, underlay the, the California gold rush, we have that in the Klondike. We own every bit of it, and it's in the same size and scale as what was in California. So when we have gold in bedrock, one end to the other of it, and in three different places now we have zones that have implied tonnage they're certainly economically interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, when might we know whether they're economically viable that's quite a ways away yet I suppose yeah well with, I mean really it's still the the first level of effort here is to prove to the rest of the world that there's gold there yeah. because because many people don't believe it because of uh-huh. some of the previous work yeah um, and and so it is a systematic approach especially now that we sure. own the belt um, and there are differences from one end of the belt to the other that we're, we're still trying to understand. But what we've been able to do so far is prove for sure there is lots of gold there. Mm-hmm. We have a good handle on 
locally in some places where the gold is, and, and so we're just going to continue exploration to find it. Mm-hmm. Peter, well, I, the, uh, grades, the grades you talked about in your press release today, uh, two, 2.4 grams over 37 meters and 6.6 grams, I guess, included in that intersection of uh, seven over 7 meters, 7.05 meters. Is that sort of similar to what the grades were at the uh, mined out before in the 1,200 uh, ounces? Uh, Do you no, know about that? The, the, the Lone Star mine, the one that operated in the early 1900s, they were mining, I think, they were mining things in the 1,000-gram range. Yeah. Um, and we have found samples. We found one of the veins that they did mine, which ran between 1,000 and 1,500 grams, so whatever that 50 ounces, say. Um, and, and back then, that would have been economic at, at $20 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, the one ounce material that we find typically in quartz veins only, um, it, so they tend to be relatively small, but the one ounce back at the turn of the century probably wasn't economic, and that's, that's what's in the area, the waste rock around this old mine. So the difference today is we, we have discovered disseminated gold uh, within a, a particular unit, and it also has quartz veins in it, so you see grades pick up when you get the quartz veins. But the good news is there's these broad areas of disseminated gold in the host rock, and that's what we, it's the two to three grams over very wide widths. And, mm-hmm. and I'll add to that, all of that is directly at surface, mm. and it's in a soft, friable rock that we could pick mm. up with a backhoe. Oh. Um, so it is an attractive target. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a basically a very simple gold gold deposit, if it turns out to be that scale. Sure. Uh, how soon do you expect to report the remaining assays from this drill program, this year's drill program? I'm going to be scattered over the next. The, the latest could be as late as very early January, uh-huh. um, and that's really only because we had a power outage in Vancouver. And the lab lost a bunch of our samples and had to go back to the mm. uh, the pulps and redo them from scratch. Oh. And so we we lost. Well, basically, it's you know it was a storm. Hey, things happen. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of extra weeks been added to our assay stream. It wasn't just us; it affected all of our clients. But there you go. Could you could you give us just a sense of of what? The magnitude, or what? The, I mean, I don't know how many of these these structures that you've identified, and but those that you have, give us a sense of the magnitude of the of the of the target size here. What you're looking at? So the the the, the larger structures that we can see um, cut through. So the scale of our property itself, it's fifty five fifty kilometers long, so thirty miles by. Yeah. Five to ten miles wide. Wow! Um, and what we've done is staked the the major controlling through-growing structure, which runs from one end of the property to the other, so fifty miles long. And there are splays, major splays off that, mm-hmm. um, which are five to ten miles each. Oh. And there's probably twenty of those, and those directly control where the gold is situated. Um, and now we've done, we've gone back, and part of the work over the last two years is to image this with more detailed magnetics, and we see subsidiary structures off those, and 
One of those we drilled at Gay Gulch and got 76 grams over 2.8 meters. So that's a, a subsidiary or tertiary order structure off these big ones. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, you know, hundreds of kilometers of strike potential. It's a silly number, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, big. it's a big it's number. Well, d- you, we're, just, we're just about out of time here. So, But I have to ask you, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of drilling next year, the way it looks, if the gold markets hold up, as I expect they will. Uh, you're going to be doing a lot of drilling. How's your treasury right now? Uh, we're going to, we'll be, we can drill into June or July. We'll have about a million dollars to start. We will be mm-hmm. doing a money raise sometime then. Uh, I think the drill results will support that. Um, we have a billionaire for, well, we have several billionaires for shareholders who are very supportive. Uh, so we don't have access to, we don't have a problem accessing capital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and actually another thing I'll note is that our neighbors are, are Gold Corp and Kinross. And mm-hmm. Gold Corp just recently bought Kamenak for uh, half a billion, a little over half a billion dollars. And Kinross in 20, I say 2011, 2012, paid 130 or 140 million dollars to buy Underworld. And the Gold Corp are now developing the coffee project. Their road, their haul road, runs right through our property. And lastly, we're right on the outskirts of Dawson. It means that we can start earlier and work later and work way cheaper than anybody else in the Yukon because we're basically on a highway, on an, on an airstrip, or on, a, on an airport, rather. Oh, that's really and, that's very very helpful, no doubt about it. Uh, we're we're going to have to wrap it up now. Anything else you'd like to make sure people hear on this this first uh, time that you're you're telling your story to our people? Well, I, I'm actually enjoying listening to that. I enjoyed your first speaker, and I like technical analysts. So one thing I'll say is that U.S. dollar gold prices are great. Can, Canadian dollar is less than the U.S., so we have a huge advantage. So. In dollar terms, we're at you know eighteen hundred, nineteen hundred Canadian gold, uh, and that also is a distinct advantage for gold explorers in Canada. No doubt about it. Well, thank you very much for being with us, Peter, and we'll look to do it again sometime. I'm looking forward to seeing you up at the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver in um, just a little over, well, a little more than a week or so, I guess, from now. And uh, I look forward to to keeping up with your story and having you on again sometime in the near future, so we can. Let our listeners uh, know how you're progressing. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jay. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, folks, we are going to break now, but don't go away because David McElvenny will be with us. And he has some very wise advice about not only about money, but some other matters in life that probably matter more than money. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David McElvenny. New Legacy Gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the Cortez Gold trend of mining-friendly Nevada, which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world. New Legacy's deposit is a Carlin-style gold deposit, which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere. New Legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies Oceana Gold and Barrett Gold Corp., the world's largest gold mining company. New Legacy is well-funded and professionally managed, and we invite you to visit our website to learn more newlegacygold.com that's n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y gold.com again n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y gold.com 
Ariane Phosphate is the owner of the world's largest greenfield phosphate project. Unlike other fertilizer nutrients such as potash and nitrogen, phosphate is in deficit in most areas of the world, including right here in North America. It has no substitute and is necessary if we're to grow our crops. Unlike the Middle East and North Africa, which controls most of the world's phosphate, Ariane is situated in mining-friendly Quebec and, once in production, will reduce North America's growing reliance on foreign supply. With a market cap representing just 4% of its $2 billion NPV, Ariane may be the answer to growth in investors' portfolios while ensuring the safety of our food supply. Ariane, D-A-N on the TSXV and D-R-R-S-F in the U.S. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McElvaney. And uh, before we go any further, I would like to just uh, have you jot down the website. It's McElvaneyWeeklyCommentary.com, I think is where you should go, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y, WeeklyCommentary.com. At least I suggest you go there to listen to David's weekly commentary because it's very valuable. Download it, listen to it, and uh, enjoy it, profit from it, and... uh, uh, and I think you won't be sorry for taking some time to do that. David uh, is the president of the McIlvany Financial Companies, McIlvany Wealth Management, and the ICA. That's a 36-year-old precious metals brokerage firm. Uh, he is a graduate of Biola University and Oxford University, where he studied philosophy and political theory. Uh, but since then, he has uh, become... A very seasoned professional, uh, having gained expertise in, in finance and uh, in the markets with Morgan Stanley in California, and then more recently taking over his family's business, which has been dedicated uh, to truly serving the needs of, of, of a large number of people in various ways and uh, helping them with their financial needs. But the McIlvany legacy, uh, David's legacy and his family legacy is more than just about financial markets and material needs. Indeed, David and his father before him know that the increasing chaos that is taking place in the global economy and the really guttural sort of display of uh, existing political campaign here in America have, have its roots really in the spiritual realm. And David is one of the few financial professionals that I know of these days who understands that connection between the spiritual uh, you know, the, the orders that our creator gave us, the way we're supposed to live our lives and how affluence can spring forth from that. It doesn't mean that if we are uh, following a, a Christian uh, viewpoint that we're going to necessarily be wealthy in material uh, material ways, but it does mean that we will have a, our lives ordered in a way that will allow us to provide and share and give and serve others. And, and I think that's much of what David and his father before him uh, have been about in their lives, which is really one of the reasons I'm really happy to have David with me again. Thanks for joining me again, David. Great to be with you, Jay. Always enjoy our conversations. I always do, off mic as well as on mic. And I would just say, uh, did I give the right place for people to go, McIlvaneyWeeklyCommentary.com, or is there a simpler one? Yeah, McIlvaney.com. When people want to 
yeah, when people want to know what we're thinking about market-related things, the commentary side is great. Uh, if they have an interest in the book that I'm just printing and uh, taking to the market, uh, they can go to davidmacklevaney.com and it has information on the book and ordering and things like that. So um, davidmacklevaney.com for the book and uh, commentary, of course, our conversations are usually relating to the markets and things like that. Um, so wh- wh- wherever, wherever they want to spend time is great. Okay, great. Well, the name of the book is The Intentional Legacy. Uh, and we want to get into that, David, uh, but before we get into your book, I, we'll try to save that. I think it's the best for last. Uh, I would like to focus on some current issues that are very disturbing, at least to me as an, as an old guy. You know, I'm closer to your father's age than to your age, probably. And I, you know, I can remember as a grade school kid, uh, Eisenhower was my president at that time. Times were much different. We still were on a, on a gold standard, uh, at least an international gold standard at that point in time. There weren't credit cards yet. And people actually saved before they consumed, uh, and that was sort of the the uh, the way I was brought up, at least in the early years until the 60s and 70s, things sort of changed uh, in the culture of our country. Um, but in any event, um, David, I've titled today's show, can, can America's Superior Military Perpetuate U.S. Dishonest Hegemony Forever? And, you know, uh, in your last weekly podcast, which I strongly suggest people listen to, that one and, and future ones, that one that I listened to recently, you talked about the Philippines and how the new leader of that country has not only used some very uncomplimentary language to describe our president, but has essentially turned against the United States and has really in, in trade relations and has said, you know, basically told the United States to get lost and has uh, said that he's going to pledge his allegiance now to China. You know, and that's after we've had a long history with the Philippines. The United States has had a long history of uh, you know of, of trade relations, military alliances, and so forth with with the Philippines. Um, what do you think is going on here? What what's what drove the Philippines and this new leader to thumb his nose at the United States? Yeah, I think there's a growing sense amongst the emerging markets and uh, markets that are not not in the G8 or even in the G20 that perhaps they need to reconsider who they're aligning themselves with and perhaps they want to be more closely aligned with the up-and-coming power as opposed to the has-been. Um, mm. We don't know for sure how history will be written, but at least this piece is clear. Duterte in the last week or two announcing his separation from the United States. And you know, for a man that came into office in June, following major agreements that we had with the Filipino government, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, in March of this year, it looks like those are just sort of scraps of paper worth nothing today because he's he's moving quickly towards the embrace of the Chinese, um, massive partnership with them, and um, we give expectations and exhortations and we tell people what to do and how to do it, and the Chinese, on the other hand, are saying, how much money do you need? And mm. uh, by the way, we really don't have strings attached. So that's not altogether true. There's right. no strings attached, but um, you know, $24 billion is on the table, and the Philippines has the opportunity to do some different things and go a different direction. Well, David, the United States can print money out of nothing, un- unlimited amounts seemingly after 2008, 2009, trillions of dollars created out of thin air. Uh, can't we continue to do that I think and, we're and, very and compete with the Chinese? 
I think we're very uncertain as to our role as an empire, and mm-hmm. nobody wants to admit that we have one. We've not <laughs> operated as one of the empires of, of, of the years or, or, or decades past where you, know, you, you basically controlled the world. We are looking for influence, and what we're seeing is our influence is being eroded and where we might have had influence previously. I mean, consider the Philippines has been a part of the U.S. nexus since 1898 at the end of of a massive conflict, the Spanish-American War, and up until 1946 uh, was actually um, ours, you could say. And Mm -hmm. so for them to move away, I think it's just, it's a symptom. And for a thoughtful investor, you'd have to say, are are the countries that we have relied upon in the past going to be reliable in the future? And I think that is very interesting when we think about financing our deficits. Uh, the Middle East has been a part of that, recirculating trade dollars, petrodollars, and, and more recently China recirculating trade dollars into U.S. treasuries. As those appetites wane and as, as politicians, new politicians come in with a new perspective, I think we're going to have to fight for what was uh, a foregone conclusion. We are the greatest empire in the world today. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to fight, you mean literally with, with military might? You know, it was very interesting. Juan Zarate, uh, formerly with the Treasury Department, wrote a fascinating book called Treasury's War just a few years ago. And in it, he highlights how we've brought the tools of the Treasury into the modern battlefield, and that tanks and bombs and guns are a bit passe. We can fight fights uh, through liquidity and capital flows far more effectively, and if we have an enemy, we can make sure that they feel the noose tighten uh, from the standpoint of capital flows very effectively using the Treasury as the new War Department. And so uh, I'm not sure that it will be a military conflict, but I think certainly the Treasury has been and will continue to be involved. We've been using that against Russia, it seems. How effective do you think it's been? Um, yeah, I think, I think we've, to some degree, been effective. Um, it hasn't endeared them to us at all, of course. Um, we use the same strategy and tactics with Iran. And I think really what we're doing is we're creating a whole group of people that dislike us more and more and are mm-hmm. just more open to cooperating amongst themselves and finding workarounds to the systems that we have in place. Well, it certainly seems to be the case with Russia and, and China, and you wonder about the BRICS and the uh, the new Silk Road that we've had. Um, uh, I don't know if you know the historian William Engdahl, F. William Engdahl. He's been a guest on this show a number of times, written a number of books, and he fo- his focus is largely on the rising you know the the rising eastern powers, the the China and 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 the uh, the amazing infrastructure that's being put, not only physical infrastructure, railroads and uh, and uh, transportation infrastructure, but also of course uh, the financial infrastructures that they are putting in place to compete against the IMF or uh, the World Bank and uh, the what I call the Anglo uh, the the Anglo American uh, Empire and. Um, you wonder just you know how I mean how far this can go and and uh, and how long it can it can go on, David? Because we, you know, it, it, nobody is really experiencing what what you'd say is sound economics or sound market driven economics. Certainly not the United States, uh, China certainly not. But how do you account for the ascension of of countries like China that are certainly not free market com- countries at all? 
And how do you account for the demise of our economy, which is certainly not doing very well, to say the least? Well, we've moved in the direction here in the States towards a command and control economy where prices are fixed and stock and bond markets are essentially nationalized. And ironically, over the last 20, 30 years, China has moved from a complete command and control economy to something that has many of the characteristics of capitalism, even though their structures are still in place with the Politburo. I think it's very interesting to watch what's taken place since the steam engine emerged on the scene. We had the world which was sort of facing eastward prior to the invention of the steam engine. And after that, um, you look at port development in Hamburg and, and sort of the redirection of the whole world westward, mm. and we benefited from that for 100 years. The, the notion that you described earlier, the Silk Road, what they're calling the One Belt, One Road Project, mm-hmm. is, is again an attempt to reorient things back to the east and basically capture a European interest um, and redirect it towards China and a major economic development zone where not only energy but goods and services focus on uh, the resources of that country. So uh, we could be seeing a similar shift, frankly, and, and these things don't happen overnight. Um, but I think over the next 10 to 15 years, you're likely to see our market share in terms of the global economy erode and uh, a greater market share shift in the direction of China. I want to talk a little bit uh, about your book, have you talk about uh, the international, uh, the intentional legacy. Um, you, the intentional legacy you're talking about is a family legacy. Uh, why is it such, why is it so important? Um, well, first of all, maybe you can just discuss what you mean by a legacy. When, you know, I think of legacies like the American Airlines as a legacy, or I think of legacies of very important people. We think of, uh, you know, the Rockefellers, Ford, perhaps, uh, the Rothschilds, people that have, you know, been very, have had major impacts, uh, visible impacts, at least, on society. But what what are you talking about when you're talking about legacy? I gather in looking at your book, you're talking about family legacies to a great extent. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a large or small. You can, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it, you can look at it from the standpoint of a financial legacy. That's tangible assets, that's real physical stuff, and of course, those wealthy families best exhibit that. Um, but there's other kinds of legacy uh, which speak to the values of a person, um, you know, the, the uh, courage that a soldier exhibits on the battlefield is a part of his own personal legacy. There's mm-hmm. virtues and values expressed in, in action each day that have nothing to do with money. And I think what that opens up is a broader definition of the concept of legacy. And I think it's very important because not everyone has billions of dollars. Um, Some people don't even have two nickels to rub together, and yet they can leave an amazing legacy. And I think for those families who do have resources, it's important to recognize that there is a foundation which needs to be built for those physical, tangible assets to be transferred from one generation to the next with great success. And that requires managing a different set of resources. So we would shift our emphasis from tangible asset management to intangible asset management. Now we're talking about matters of the heart, matters of the mind. We're talking about matters of family identity and the things that you choose each day to create a family identity, which really set the stage for any subsequent uh, transfer of assets uh, on a larger scale. So that's a deeply personal issue, and it's, it's something that every family has to look at and say, we will leave a legacy. 
are we happy with what we're going to leave? Have we been intentional enough about what we want to be uh, moving from one generation to the next? I make the case that legacy is something that you build every day, not necessarily something that you leave at the end of your life, but mm-hmm. you're involved in the, the work of legacy every day sitting around having a conversation about the latest political debate, sitting around having a conversation about the book that you're reading or that your kids or grandkids are, are, are going through, issues that they struggle with, questions that they have about life. These are things that are so fundamental, unfortunately so basic, that I think sometimes they're overlooked. I do too, and I think basically most of us don't. Uh, you know, As you point out in your book, I, I believe you point out that whether you like it or not, you're going to have a legacy. It's not something you can get away from. You're, you're going to have your, your kids and people that come after you are going to remember you or going to be, and their very lives will be shaped to, a, to an extent uh, by, your, by what you've done and how you've lived your life and so forth. Um, so you can't really get away from it, right? Everybody's got one, but I think that how many people are really intentional about their legacy? I mean, I think, you know, probably really wealthy people who want to make sure their, their kids get married to the right people and so on and so forth. They think about their legacy. They think about where they're going in the future. Most of us sort of think that we're just insignificant people here, that we're not really, that our lives aren't really that important, uh, that we should even be concerned about our legacy. We're just here. You know, it's, we're just accidents that happen to be here. There's no purpose in our lives. I mean, isn't that the way a lot of people feel? It is the way people feel, and it's one of the ways in which I think we're fumbling an opportunity, and, and that is that each individual has immense value and worth who they are as individuals, and, and sharing who they are as individuals with their family is, is so much a part of who we are. I, I think of my father, I think of my grandparents, and I think of all that I have gleaned from them through the years. Jay, I wouldn't be who I am without Don, without, I can name a dozen men and women who came before me, and I am borrowing their capital. I am borrowing the lessons learned and the battles that they have fought through years and years of struggle to grow and develop as individuals. And all of that collective wisdom is a part of who I am. It, my legacy and theirs, really, it's the sum total of their life message. It's not a balance sheet. It's not a balance sheet, unless you want to include on your balance sheet both intangibles and tangibles. But I recognize that my inclination to um, be courageous in certain instances or be generous in certain instances, this is not something that, that just spontaneously emerges out of me, but I saw it demonstrated by my mother and father and grandparents. And to the degree that these are the things that we talk about, we're cultivating values that create a culture that I think we're proud of. And you know, so to look and say, we've got serious issues, not only in our country, politically, um, but around the world, there's, there's something that's not quite right. And if you scratch very deep, very deep beneath the surface, you'll find that there are major cultural issues, there are major moral issues, ultimately there's major spiritual issues, and again, we're more concerned about the latest version of the iPhone uh, than, than we are sitting down and gleaning from our parents and grandparents the things that will ultimately be of greatest benefit uh, to us as we live our lives, uh, hopefully with great wisdom. All right, David, with just uh, less than a minute left to go, how can we discover what our legacy is as individuals? Can you do that in 30 seconds? 
It, yeah, absolutely. I think this is this really is like an accounting function. One of the first things that you do is create a balance sheet of assets and liabilities, and with gratefulness in your heart, look at the things that are both an asset to you, they've been great benefits to you, and the things that you would say, this is real baggage, and I wish I didn't have it from my parents and grandparents. And the accounting function is so important because you have to start somewhere. And to the degree that you want to set a different trajectory for your family, you must know the place from which you're starting. So I think creating a balance sheet, an asset and liability balance sheet, and listing the things that have been immeasurably helpful and the things that have been immeasurably harmful, uh, again, not to castigate past generations or shame them, but to recognize that if you're not careful, you can perpetuate pain from one generation to the next unnecessarily. And, and so you can me, also do, yeah. You you can also well, that, do positive things. You can you, you can pass along the positive from one generation to the next. David, we are we are out of time. I'm I'm very sorry. There's so much more to talk to you about. I just can't recommend enough the intentional legacy by David McIlvaney. Uh, this this transcends the material. We usually talk about gold and things, and David would love to have you back to talk about that. I know you believe in honest money. People should be uh, should should have on their balance sheets gold, but these intangible balance sheets that are so important also in allowing us to enjoy our lives and, and becoming the best persons that we can be, that God intended us to be when he created us. So, uh, David, I want to thank you very much for being with us, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. And again, uh, folks, pick up the inter- the Intentional Legacy. David, where, again, they should go to buy this book directly? Uh, the Intentional Legacy, if you go to davidmcilvaney.com, davidmcilvaney.com, you can order that um, and have it in time for Christmas conversation with family about the things that really matter. Oh, it really would be a great uh, book for that. Thank you very much, David. Well, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Next week, Daryl McMillan of Gold Money will be with us, and I expect we'll have Michael Oliver hopefully with us again. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. New Legacy Gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the Cortez Gold trend of mining-friendly Nevada, which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world. New Legacy's deposit is a Carlin-style gold deposit, which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere. New Legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies Oceana Gold and Barrett Gold Corp., the world's largest gold mining company. New Legacy is well-funded and professionally managed, and we invite you to visit our website to learn more. NewLegacyGold.com. That's N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y Gold.com. Again, N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y Gold.com. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Speck Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the Symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively.